guys need to understand, like, you have to learn the foundation, fundamental stuff, and do it really, really, really well. And you have to earn drop sets and rest pause sets and bands and chains. You got to earn that stuff. Welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pokolsky. Building your greatest body, living your greatest life is the mission of myself and the mission of this podcast. I want to inspire, empower, and educate you with the knowledge and skill set to build your greatest body. Today's guest is someone who is literally at the tip of the spear. There's very few people out there who get it when it comes to actually building a great body and all of the things that go in, learning how to check all the boxes and be able to talk at an educated level on all of these things. There's many people that think they can, very few people that actually can. And as you guys will soon see in today's podcast, this gentleman can hold a conversation when it comes to literally anything as far as building your greatest body goes. So Uh, Luke Lehman is my guest today, and I really enjoyed sitting down. Luke actually came over to our house, our place in Australia. We sat down on the couch, had a really, really great organic conversation. He's an extremely bright guy, really, really witty, and this was an amazing conversation. I wish I had more time with Luke, and I promised to get him back on the podcast again because really we just started to scratch the surface. Um, Some of the things you can expect, uh, understanding neurotransmitter dominance, how neurotransmitters affect your brain, which then is affecting your nervous system and your output. Um, how men and women can vary. Uh, we looked at, looked at nutrition quite extensively. Um, Luke now focuses on teaching coaches because that's his greatest opportunity to impact the greatest number of people, which I really admire. He's really up-leveled the game of the coaches in Australia. The coaches in Australia, in my opinion, are some of the best in the entire world because they're so focused on improving their ability to deliver a result and Luke is one of their greatest teachers. He's got some really, really great, simple and applicable insights um, in, into how to build your greatest body, how to understand what goes into it. So we have some really, really fun times with this conversation with Luke Lehman in Melbourne, Australia. Enjoy the podcast. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm sitting here in Melbourne, Australia, just having wrapped up our camp at Doherty's Gym. I want to give a shout-out to Tony Doherty for being such an amazing, gracious host. He's been a recent guest of the podcast and an incredible wealth of information and just a passionate guy. But I'm sitting here now with uh, a guy who's recently come into my life and I've been aware of for a really long time as being one of the most brilliant guys in the industry when it comes to getting people in really, really great shape. And this guy's not only uh, done it himself, but he's been in the trenches, uh, Mr. Luke Lehman. Hey, what's going on? Dude, I'm grateful for having you here, man. Yeah, glad to be here, man. It's, uh, it's, we've talked on and off for years and years and years and yeah. finally had a chance to, to hang out. Yeah, and I've heard so many things about you, man. I mean, you had a great reputation working for the Paulkin Group in the past, being their top educator and traveling the world and having so many students work under you and everybody spoke so highly of you, man. So to be able to have you come to our camp and then uh, be able to connect with you now, I'm very grateful for it, man. Yeah, I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to come out and see you guys because it was fantastic. Thanks, like, man. Yeah, you, you spend you know, th- over 30 years training and, and ten, 20 years training other people, and you think you know everything, and then you come out to a camp like that, and you're like, oh, and there's all these freaking bombs going off, you know, and, and so many ideas about 
new stuff we could do with our clients and things like that and like missing pieces of the puzzle that are like, wow, that makes a lot of sense, especially for me because some of the injuries I've had and maybe taking some of my training back and putting in some of the intention training you guys do and really focusing on being, I love what you guys say about being muscle centric and then movement centric. And now that I'm going into, you know, I'm kind of out of the physique game, moving into competitive jujitsu, it's you get all these weird injuries that you're not used to because you're changing it to a different sport. And I'm seeing so many things. I'm going to go home now and start rewriting my own personal workouts to then start correcting those issues. Oh, very cool, man. Well, thank you for that. Um, and as we, we always talk about, like, um, I, at least for Jordan and I, it's a very unique opportunity to be able to, um, you know, have a great educational background, be able to connect with people like yourself and have you sit in there and, and objectively just, you know, uh, interpret what we say and, and give us criticism because that's ultimately the only way we get better. So I think that's pretty great, man. I'm, thank you for that. And, uh, you know, I'll take your words, uh, both the, the positive and the constructive as always. Yeah. And, and so thank you. Um, but, you know, not, not about us now today. I want to talk about you, man. And um, one of the things that you mentioned that you're um, known for, and maybe this is not what you want to be known for. I don't want to send people your way to, to, for this particular reason, but it's a great jumping off point for us is, um, you know, and this is for you and I both, is people come to you when they're broken. People come to you when something's wrong, right? So most bodybuilders don't acknowledge, or most people aspiring for a great physique, don't acknowledge that there's something wrong until something breaks. And that's a really unfortunate reality. And I guess it's um, par for the course, because nobody's ever given you a framework as for all the things you should be checking off. Like, hey, are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you doing this? And I, and I had an analogy for the guy we were training with this morning. It's like, hey, man, you have all these different volume knobs in your body. You've got one turned up all the way, and all the rest of them are basically turned off. And you're not paying attention to these seven or eight other things that could absolutely improve your health, improve your brain, improve your performance, improve your recovery. But you just don't think about those things. You're only thinking about this one gas pedal over here. And and then eventually, as we saw, like he breaks. Like thing, for such a young guy, things aren't going, all, I mean, huge. But like if he doesn't get corrected soon, something's going to break substantially. So um, people come to you and they start going, hey, Luke, like I realize you're a really smart guy. How, can you fix me? Um, what are some of the common things that you see as being um, – impediments to people developing their great physique oh, it's you know it's one of those things when you go into bodybuilding you have really good bodybuilders that had great genetics and they did a lot of drugs and they had right. the, they had the mental state to push themselves through and, and resilient suffer. body very resilient especially yeah. the men because the yeah. men tend to be physically a bit more resilient than the women the women tend to be a bit more mentally resilient so when you get guys, guys can punish themselves, but they can recover easily from that because the difference between male and female sex hormones, right? When you have the women, they will have all kinds of crazy things happening to their body, and then they'll just keep pushing on until they get past the point of no return, and then it takes a long time to dig them back out of that grave that they've dug. Uh, that just brings up a thought in my mind. Like, have you ever defined what this concept of, of physique resilience actually is? So I'm just thinking, like, you're – the reason I'm bringing it up with you, because you probably have a better answer to this than anyone else. Um, you know, every bodybuilder, and I spoke about this on Friday, I think. Actually, no, it was on the podcast I did the day before. I, I suggest that every bodybuilder is GABA dominant. Like, most guys are all breaks, right? They figure out how to go fast because they're, uh, you know, when I go say go fast, how to work hard. Um, but most of them are so chilled out. Most of them go on their own schedule. There's no stress. No type A personalities in bodybuilding, or very few. Uh, thereby, is that in some way contributing? Is their neurotransmitter dominance in some way contributing to this uh, Im improved recoverability that allows them to sustain this constant just beating themselves? Whereas the guy we were training with this morning, 
not a GABA dominant personality, probably more of a dopamine dominant personality. So thereby he, you know, trains hard, can't recover from it. And now his body looks like he's a walking mummy. Yeah, you know, I don't know. That's a that's an interesting interesting observation because you look at most people will move to the sport that they are mm-hmm. mentally and physically built for. So sure. when you look at guys who are really super dopamine dominant, um, they tend to go towards like things for like strength and speed. So you get mm-hmm. a lot of those guys in powerlifting, and you get them in weightlifting, you get them in strongman. And what what was the one thing we told the guy? You know, you're, you're not really strongman. you're yeah. not really built for for bodybuilding you're, you're a bit too tall and you know you're a bit too too bound up maybe you should go into strongman mm-hmm. but bodybuilding is passion so you've got to find a way to work around that right. I, I think i look at like an evolutionary issue of men versus women men w- went out and they hunted and it was more dangerous they were more likely to get killed or hurt or whatever so they had to have more physical prowess women were the, the nurturers they had to stay home and take care of things and women were more the problem solvers and things like that mm-hmm. so i look at it like that and we're not that much different than we were you know, 10,000 years ago. So when you, and it's going to take a long time, you see a lot of women moving into sports now and it's becoming a big thing because it's not a taboo subject anymore. But if women start to train and act like men, they're not going to get the same results, unfortunately, because the evolutionary pendulum hasn't caught up with them yet. Right, so is that just a hormonal thing for the most part, or is it just a lot? Levels? Yeah, it's a hormonal thing. It's a difference in in the neuromuscular system, yeah, the difference in neurochemistry. It's their chemistry and the way yeah. they think and their muscle fiber makeup and things like that. Mm-hmm. And women are much better at some things than men, right? So men men are you know stronger than women. We know that women tend to have better endurance than men, right? Pound for pound, you know, and you know you can't try to take somebody who's a round peg and just try to hammer it into a square peg and that's what happens so you end up getting a lot of uh male bodybuilding coaches training a lot of females but they don't they don't understand the nuances of female training so they just train them like they trained when they competed and it doesn't really work that well now you see where in order to try to make it that way you see a lot of girls taking drugs they probably shouldn't take i know i know bikini girls who are taking trend which is ridiculous and i know bikini girls taking growth hormone and taking dnp and taking everything i try to just not to be the you know guy calling this out but like i try to dissuade everybody from doing using steroids for as long as they possibly can like i encourage everyone to compete at least five to ten times natural because you learn so you have to you're forced to learn good habits right the conversation i had with the guy this morning is like hey man you should be competing natural right now because you need to learn how to train you don't know how to train you need to learn to eat you need to learn how to recover you need to learn how to do cardio you need to learn how to get in shape you learn those things natural then you add something else in on top of that it's an augmentation rather than dependence and i think that's the problem in our culture right now in the fitness culture is most guys are looking it's a steroid centric culture right it's like people think that i take this i get bigger no it shouldn't be that way right like learn how to train learn yeah. how to sleep like we did right yeah learn how to recover then okay now we add in 200 milligrams of testosterone a week which is trt replacement dose and you put on 24 25 pounds right you grow like a week because it's just augmenting recovery because recovery will always be the bottleneck right the, like we talked about yesterday at dinner the ability to um, break down absorb assimilate nutrients well seems to be one of the major bottlenecks in people's mm-hmm. ability to grow and recover, especially at that guy's size yeah. or at any larger size, like just the bottleneck is like, how much can you consume and recover? Right. Or like how much, how, how can you augment recovery in some way? And usually that's just like a sheer calorie point for many people. Yeah. A lot of them, they, they skip the whole point of you still have to train really hard and you still have to recover really hard. And the harder you train, the harder you have to recover. You right. still have to eat right. You've got, they, a lot of guys use steroids as a crutch. They use yeah. it to mask. Cause it makes them feel better. It makes them feel better. Yeah. They, they still get results despite doing the dumbest shit you could possibly do. Mm-hmm. So 
come back to that question about, um, you know, people are coming to you. What are the things you, co- you commonly see is like, hey, man, can you help me with this? What are, what are the breaking points for most people? You know, the, the main thing I see, especially, and, and I'll go back because the majority of people that come to me are women. Mm-hmm. And uh, the majority is they don't eat enough. Like there's, there's this disconnect between the physique nutrition world where they think that you just keep eating less and less and keep doing more and they're not fueling performance. So now the gap between fuel management gets greater and greater, and then this has an effect on your nervous system by increasing sympathetic drive. You talked about the gas pedal, and then you look at the brake pedal, and um, I was with Dr. Mike T. Nelson a few weeks ago, and we were talking about this because he, is, he did his PhD on HRV and stress, mm-hmm. and that's one of the main areas of, of focus that I use is how stress is regulating metabolism and how what happens down chain and what's the cause and what's the effect. And he talks about, you know, sympathetic system as being the gas pedal and this parasympathetic as being the brake pedal. These are two different systems. It's not a teeter-totter. So people tend to think that, well, I'll just, I'll deload and back off my training, but I'll still train hard, but they're not doing anything to actually push on the brake, which is all the foofy, you know, voodoo, voodoo stuff, stuff that, that I talk about. Yeah, it's the stuff <laughs> you and I talk about. Like yeah. you, we do the meditation yeah. every morning. We do meditation in the middle of the day. We journal. We we introspect and we do all that. So mm. when you look at like traditional Eastern philosophy of yin and yang, everyone's doing yang, yang, yang. But if you're constantly burning out your oil and not putting it back in, putting the yin back in, at some point something's going to break because your body's going to compensate until it can't compensate anymore. You know, if you look at from a therapist perspective, when do you feel chronic pain when the body can't compensate anymore and your body will do everything it can to work around dumb shit you're doing to yourself? Mm -hmm. Your metabolism is the same way. It will do things that it needs to do to survive, which you think are bad, you know, high, high blood, you become insulin resistant. Why are you becoming insulin resistant? The cell doesn't want insulin anymore. Why? The most likely theory now is you've got too much free radical damage. Right? You can't, you, you've got an impaired ability to make energy correctly. Now you're trying to shove glucose into the cell. Now your blood sugar is rising. What's the solution? The old way of thinking, let's take glucose disposal agents. Cool, I'm going to shove more sugar in the cell that still doesn't want it. You become insulin resistant. Now you become also free fatty acid resistant too. So now you get dyslipidemia. You got massive amounts of cholesterol pouring out because you can't get in the mitochondria. Now your testosterone goes low. Why? Because you need cholesterol in the mitochondria to make testosterone. For a woman, now you've got low progesterone. Now you've got estrogen dominance, which in most cases is probably a progesterone deficiency. So what's the solution? I'm going to go to the doctor. They gave me progesterone. I go batshit crazy because my body doesn't want it. Right. So that's brilliant. So much brilliance in that, man. And I think just, you know, walking through that step by step, uh, I think it's important for the listeners to start to acknowledge. Now, I want you to, to dive into this if your belief is, uh, and you can completely tell me if I'm wrong, but the, you, you kind of alluded to the, the reality that the autonomic nervous, nervous system is influencing. We know it's influencing digestion, but I often talk about the reality that I believe that people think calories in, calories out is a thing. And, and you know, calorie balance, and obviously calories are important, but I always talk about... Um, you know, uh, calories going into a stressed body with high sympathetic arousal is not the same as calories going into a parasympathetic body. So as, a, as an athlete, as a bodybuilder, you know, a lot of bodybuilders are focused on, I got to hit my macros for today. But what is your body absorbing and assimilating, right? Is it sitting in your GI tract, passing through, causing t- some type of GI distress, t- causing leaky gut? Um, those are real considerations that people are just not making. So if someone's not you know, able to get their ideal physique, if they're not able to uh, recover, if they're not able to train hard because they're lacking the energy, 
you know, my belief is step one is like, let's just control what we can control, right? Control the autonomic nervous system, control your responsiveness to stress. Seem like the, the first gateway to you as well? Yeah, absolutely. The, look, the first area of digestion is that neuroendocrine balance. It's a cephalic phase. So if you're someone who's jacked up sympathetically all the time, you've already screwed up your digestion. So people have poor toxic relationships to food. They feel like they have to remove entire food groups so they can't get lean. You right. get people that, you know, they're going in the contest and they haven't eaten a carb in, you know, 12 months and then they want to try to carb load that last week and they wonder why they can't store glycogen right. because your body's so stressed out. The more stressed out you are, the more you're breaking glycogen down, not storing it. So then you try to shove sugar in. Your body's like, oh, I can start making heat and energy with this. Cool. Now you're getting hot, but you're not actually filling out. So then what do people have to do? They have to crap load. They have to eat hamburgers and French fries and lots of sodium just to try to get themselves to not look stringy on stage. Mm -hmm. That is a direct uh, that is a, a direct association with being stressed out, running glycolysis, not running glycogen synthase. So you're not actually getting what you need. As you lean out, you should be adding more carbs. But if you're training 21 to 24 hours a week and you're eating 900 calories like a lot of these girls are, when you pump the carbs back in, the body's like, ooh, now I have energy to turn all these systems on that I've been turning off. And this is why you get a lot of people, their hair starts falling out going into a show. They get dry, scaly skin. They have no energy. They can't regulate body heat. Um, everything basically, I don't like to say the word survival mode because yeah. people take that in the wrong way. But you're basically, your body's getting more efficient at using the calories by turning off systems that aren't crucial for survival. Um, and if you go into a meal with this high stressed out state, you're going to misappropriate how you, where you put things in. That last stage of assimilation is in the mitochondria. So if your mitochondria is getting resistant to those things coming in, where's that stuff going to go? Is it going to go into making heat or energy or is it going to go into more fat stores or is it going to, you know, you, you never really know. But we just know that the shit hits the fan and everything stops working. That's a perfect place to segue into back what you just said a minute ago, talking about this necessity of nutrients ultimately getting into the cell or, or not wanting to go into the cell based on the mitochondria's current ability and the free radical yeah. production and mitochondrial uh, function. I'd love to go down that path because you know, a lot of people start talking about that. And it's a really complicated, convoluted topic for most people to understand. But it seems yeah. like you have such a grasp on it that you have this ability to articulate things that people like, you know, it's the smacking yourself on the head kind of syndrome. You're like, oh, Gosh, why doesn't anybody told me that before? So um, if we could talk a little bit about the importance of mitochondria first from a perspective of uh, an excess of calories, like we talked about people being insulin resistant and just jamming calories in there and what's happening on that level. And then maybe we come at it from the other angle of like, um, you know, someone who doesn't take in a certain micronutrient or a certain macronutrient group for an extended period of time, how that's going to affect uh, mitochondrial function. Yeah, so you've got a few things. A, if you're taking out a whole mitochondrial or whole uh, macronutrient group, in a lot of cases, people just remove that stuff. They don't add anything back. So if you're removing 400 grams of carbs, that's 1,600 calories. You need to replace that with something else. You, you don't just go into a 1,600-calorie uh, uh, deficit just right then, just starting your, your diet. It mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense. Now, if you're moving some other things around, maybe you've bumped up your protein, bumped up your fat a little bit cool, but just understand that the longer you stay away from a macronutrient group, the body wants to conserve energy. So it says, okay, I don't have a lot of sugar coming in. I'm going to make a little bit through gluconeogenesis. So I'm going to use some glutamine, some alanine. I'm going to use some glycerol from fat. I'm going to recycle some lact pyruvate to lactate back into glucose. I'm going to do all this other stuff to get enough glucose to run my brain and to run red blood cells and things like that. But 
if you're not eating any, then the body says, well, I don't need all of these enzymes to actually break it down. So it just stops making them because that's just a waste of energy, right? right? So then when you start trying to eat things again, your body can't handle them because it has to upregulate those enzymes again. And in most cases, when somebody's training that much and eating that little, you're in a severely catabolic state. So catabolic meaning breaking Highly big. Highly sympathetic arousal. Yeah, yeah, breaking big things down into small things. Mm-hmm. To be anabolic, people people in the bodybuilding world, they think of, you know, anabolic, I want to be anabolic. Yeah, you do. But if you're not eating enough, you can't be anabolic. And anabolic isn't just about building muscle. It's also about building enzymes and other things you need. And uh, plus, here's here's one of the one of the things that really drives me crazy is you get somebody that comes in and you say, okay, I see that you're taking test and trend and Mastron and Winstrol, and I see you're taking HGH. And I say, okay, so you're taking $2,500 worth of uh, gear uh, a month. Cool. What multivitamin are you taking? And they go, oh, I don't take multivitamins. They don't work. Okay. So you've cut out all this nutrition, but you're not replacing all the cofactors you need to make all these biochemical processes work. Plus, you're doing all this output, which also chews up all these cofactors, especially B vitamins, B1, B2, B3, B5, B6, B12, or some of the big ones, B9 as well. If you're not replacing that in and you're not eating enough food, um, how are you going to drive these enzymatic processes if you don't have the, the base nutrients? So people think only think of macros. They don't think about the micronutrient issue as well and also the phytonutrient thing from, from plant food. I think it's because it's not, it's not tangible, right? Like people can see... Uh, they can feel their brain not being focused. They can feel l- lethargy, but then nobody's ever said, hey, this is the quantifiable feeling you're going to get from being deficient in these micronutrients, yeah. right? And I think that's what it is. It's just like when people smoke and like, hey, you're going to get cancer. Oh, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. Well, then one day you wake up and you got cancer and you're, yeah. you're screwed, right? And that's kind of the reality with these micronutrient p- realities is, um, you know, you could t- you can not take B vitamins for your entire life. And you maybe just don't know the difference. You wake up every day and you feel the same, and they don't know what it feels like to actually feel good. Yeah, and that's what I—I'm sure you hear the same thing from your clients. Well, like, that, oh. It becomes their new normal. How yeah. I feel now, I feel great. That's your new normal. They don't right. realize what it's like to feel fantastic anymore. Yeah, it's like waking up with back pain every day, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, I just wake up with back pain. Yeah. Well, you don't have to wake up with back a pain. A lot of this stuff's easy to quantify with just a simple lab test. If you get a lab test and you look at your CBCs and your red blood cells are weird. Like if your red blood cells are microcytic or macro, if they're, you know, if all these numbers for hemoglobin is really low, then that's the, where there's smoke, there's fire. You can assume there's probably some type of B deficiency, especially B6 and B9. You know, there's there's a lot of things you can see on a lab, and I hate reading labs these days. I'm looking for software. I'll probably start using Brian Walsh's because it takes me five hours to read somebody's labs. I just don't don't enjoy it anymore. But you can see this stuff. You can run organic acids tests and see a lot of this stuff as well. Very cool. Coming back to uh, talking about this uh, paradigm that exists right now with eliminating a macronutrient from life, uh, I want to know how that begins to affect function at the cellular level. Because uh, not from a perspective, I want anyone to have a biased opinion in either direction. I want to have them. I want them to be educated from both perspectives. Yeah. Is that something you talk to? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Well, what's what's the latest trend that people think is the new greatest thing? Carnivore, man, got to be on the keto. Ca- carnivore keto. or keto, right? Yeah. I mean. Dude, people were ketogenic dieting in the 1860s. Sure, yeah. I mean, and then and they came back out and what the, I mean, it, look at the 50s and the 60s and 70s with Geronda and then with also Atkins. And then you fast forward to the late 90s and now we've got Atkins you know, revolution again. And then you have South Beach diet. This stuff's been around forever. It's like the new bell bottoms. You know, people mm-hmm. are going to start wearing bell bottoms the next year and they go, wow, look at this new thing. I'm bringing them back right now, actually. I decided oh, decide I'm going to bring them back. You bring them back. Yeah. Um, you know, these can be valuable tools, but that's all they are. You don't, 
you if you if you're a carpenter you don't want to just have a hammer. You're going to need a screwdriver and you're going to need a level and you're going to need all this other stuff. And I'm not a carpenter, so I'm just it's throwing just shit out. too complicated, right? Yeah. That's why people don't do it. Yeah. But what they need to understand is the the main macronutrient for performance is carbohydrate and it always will be. Like it's always going to trump everything else as long as you're using the carbs and putting them in the right places and eating enough and that type of thing. And um, as you get leaner, as you get more insulin sensitive, you should be pumping up carbohydrates. And what you see is people take carbs out going into their show instead of pumping them up. So they need to have a lot of different tools and know how to flip flop between those things. Right. Um, you, you get a lot of people that are doing the, the ketogenic diet and they wonder why their lipids look horrible. I mean, there's, there's, pers- pro- there's huge populations that can't do saturated fat. They can't do high fat. You look at the APOE44 gene. If you go into a ketogenic diet, you are probably going to jack your cholesterol up. All right. You're probably going to, your HDL is probably going to go down. It doesn't work the same in you. That doesn't mean you can't use it, but you have to use it more intelligently and not think just ketogenic. Maybe I need a cyclical ketogenic. That That's typically how I eat because it's always worked well for me. Mm-hmm. Um, a targeted ketogenic diet. Do you use a low-carb, modified low-carb diet? Do you use a zone diet? There's yeah. this, this continuum that you can move up and down of from low-carb to high-carb, and you're going to fit on there somewhere, not always, at different times. So you have to know how to move that up and down, and that's that's the importance of – you know, if you're going to talk nutrition, you have to find somebody that actually understands not just physique nutrition, but sports nutrition and also general nutrition. So framing this around, you know, I'd like to start maybe with what you would typically do for a client and how you kind of frame the decision making process. But I'd also like to give the, the listener a, a takeaway, right? So not everyone can afford you or me as a nutritionist, right? Um, so not even putting us in the same class. I know you're, you know, you're amazing at this stuff, but nobody can, not everyone can afford that. Not everyone makes it a priority. So if we had to give them some type of thought process on how to make that decision on their own, like how do I start? Because I'd love to hear how you frame that. I probably, you know, and or I'm, I'm going to assume like let's just like talk general population, right? Uh, I've, I probably the best piece of advice I've ever gotten on this is I at, when we were all at Swiss uh, a few months ago, I was talking to Andre Benoit. And Andre, ex-Canadian Olympic athlete, uh, he was one of my mentors at Pollockin Group. He was one of Paul- Charles Pollockin's right-hand man. This guy is, is amazing guy, knows training up and down. He knows nothing about nutrition. He'll tell you that. So I was asking him, what are you doing with your nutrition now? Do you outsource that or do you, you know, what do you, he goes, you know what? He goes, what I found the best thing to do is just tell them about the South Beach diet. Just follow that. He goes, if you follow South Beach diet for most general population, they're going to be pretty good. What is, I don't even know what that is. What the is South it? Beach diet is, it's a modified Atkins diet. So, um, I think it was back in the late 90s, early 2000s, mm-hmm. when everybody was started doing, uh, Atkins ketogenic dieting again. Uh, there was a doctor from Miami. Uh, from South Beach, and he came out with a South Beach diet, and it it looks very similar to Atkins, where you do a 20-gram induction phase, and you go to 50 grams, and you start, at some point, you start slowly adding more and more carbs to your tolerance, and you add in healthy carbs, and you start adding in more fruit, you start adding, you know, a lot more plant plant matter, which is, when you see people doing ketogenic diet, that's usually what they're missing. Mm -hmm. They don't eat enough plant foods, right? Um, I think if people would just... You know, eat like a vegan and then garnish it with meat, that'd be pretty good. <laughs> That's the joke. I say I'm 50% vegan, yeah. 50% carnivore. That's it. You yeah. know, <laughs> half, half your plate with plant yeah. matter and then a thir- uh, the one-third of the plate of protein and one-third of the plate, pl- the plate of whatever starchy or fruit or whatever you can handle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The more you train, keep adding in more, more 
carbs, right? Um, I like what Charles Pollock used to say, you got to earn your carbs. So mm -hmm. if you're training really hard, you probably want to add more carbs in. If you're not training, you probably don't need that many, but you still want to get the phytonutrients. So you still want to add in lots of leafy greens, um, lots of non-starchy veggies. And then, yeah, you probably want to have a little bit of fruit because there's stuff in those, that, that plant matter you just simply can't get from anything else. Um, and the carnivore, dry, carnivore diet's driving me crazy. And I think it's going to have a massive backlash on people at some point. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that long-term, that's not a good play, right? Short-term could be a really oh, yeah. good tool. Right, right. Yeah. We, so, you know, you look at Jordan Peterson's daughter, uh, Michaela, like she she needs this for her autoimmunity. It seems yeah. to make it way better. That makes a lot of sense You've got a me. pathological reason. Someone who's obese, no problem. Restrict yeah. your food groups, you're going to get in yeah. shape, right? Um, but then realizing that that's not a long-term solution. And people, you know, I've had people say to me, like, well, I cut that out for a long time and I put it back in and I don't feel good. Well, of course you don't. So, yeah. like, that's what your body has, like, yeah. just like you're speaking about. So slowly introduce it, realize that's a huge problem. And realize that where you are now might be different after you lose 25 kilos of fat. You know, you might you, your body, physiologically speaking, will be completely different. And from a, from a sports nutritionist perspective, it's my job to pre-frame this with my client say, hey, we're going to use this for a very limited amount of time, and this is why, but then we need to move to this over here. Because if you don't pre-frame that, let's say, and you hear it with every, every fad diet, and I don't want to call these fad diets, but it is what it, it is. is. Sure. If somebody does a vegan diet, what do they say? Oh, I started a vegan diet, and I, my, all my bl bloods look great, and I had less inflammation. Well, f you, started, you stopped eating Twinkies. Like, right. no shit. Right. You that, get the problem gun. is most of them don't, right? Yeah. You're, you're still yeah. vegan. Twinkies are still vegan. But then you have, you have people that do the carnivore diet, and they go, oh, all my inflammation went away. I felt better. Well, no kidding. You you cut out a ton of junk. You right. systemized what you were doing. But at some point, if you want to move forward, you're probably going to have to continuously tweak that. And everybody is going to probably move around the same place. If you look at most of the studies on low-carb and high-fat or high-fat and low-carb, if you look at these, I think I just said that the same. So when you look at these, yeah. I was thinking about this on the way over, and I was thinking about the law of extremes. And I've, I've, I was trying to look it up on Google. Like, has anybody ever talked about this? And I couldn't find a name for it. So I'm just going to call it Lehman's Law of Extremes. All right, right? I like it. Whenever you go to the extreme, the attrition rate is going to be massive. Right? So if you look at most studies that did extremely low carb, extremely high carb, right? So in those instances, you have to, you have to give something up. So in one, you're going extremely low fat. One, you're going extremely high fat. The attrition rate's around 60%, which means that 60% of the people could not sustain that diet. Right. And most people will gravitate to around 30 to 40% carbs, right? So, and, and then before about 10, 10 or so years ago, in the last 10 years, it's changed a little bit. Most of the low-carb dieting wasn't as low as people thought. It was mostly as like a zone-based diet. Most of them was around 40% carbohydrates. So that would be considered a low-carb diet, even though that's not what we generally, in, in the general population, they don't think about that as a low-carb diet. Right. But I think for most gen pop, somewhere around 25 to 40% from carbohydrates, um, you know, at least one gram per pound, 2.2 uh, grams per kilo of protein is, is plenty for most people. If you're dieting really hard, I'd pump that up a lot, maybe 2.7 grams per kilo, and then you know, fill in the rest with whatever else is, you need. Now, is, is that... Speaking to that, because I get that question a ton, do you, is your belief that you pump that up according to, well, bringing one other micro, or macronutrient down, we're going to bring protein up, or is it a matter of like, hey, I'm training more, I need more recovery, I need, need these extra proteins? I, I, you know, there's a lot of different things, like protein is really satiating. Why? Because insulin is a very satiating hormone. Protein is very insulinogenic. So you eat more protein, you tend to create a, a situation where you're not as hungry all the time. 
then there's also, I like to, what I call caloric funnels, right? So let's say I'm eating 200 grams of protein and 300 grams of carbs, and I'm eating, say, maybe 80, 90 grams of fat. If I want to create a, a hypothetical caloric funnel, I don't necessarily need to take calories away. What I can do is, is parlay the thermic effect of food. So I can take 100 grams of carbs and switch that with 100 grams of protein, and now I've jacked up the thermic effect of food. Now that I'm eating 100 grams of carbohydrate, any carbs that I need up and over that, my body can make through gluconeogenesis, right. which is another caloric funnel because that's an expensive process for the body. Mm -hmm. Then if, I, if my body needs to make more fat because maybe I'm eating a little bit lower fat and not eating it, now I can create fat from carbohydrates, which is another energy-costly process. So if I can trickle down hypothetical caloric funnels, then I can diet someone down but never take food away. Does that make sense? Do you do the same with fat to carb? Obviously, yeah. the carb is going to be more um, yeah. thermic than fat. So right? if I have somebody on a, on a lower-carb, higher-fat diet and maybe moderate protein, then when I'm starting to switch them in a modified low-carb diet, I can take some of that fat and parlay it into, into carbohydrates, and that increases the thermic effect 10 to 12%. Same idea than what people are seeing with a, with a carnivore diet. Even if you went isocaloric, um, you know, say you did a 3,000 calorie carnivore diet compared to a, a balanced carnivore, or sorry, a balanced diet with you know 40% carbohydrate, theoretically they're going to have a greater thermic effect. Absolutely, and not just the thermic effect, but then also the effect of changing some of that protein into what they need because there's certain things in the body that. Had, they need glucose. If you don't eat glucose, that's why we have gluconeogenesis. So you can feed things like your brain, like brain neurons and things like that, which cannot survive on solely ketones, right? Or, or then it can't survive off of protein or fat. They have to have carbohydrates. I think it's 60% uh, carbohydrates and they can run off 40% ketones. Tell me about your system, man. So someone walks into you, let's say they're an athlete, they're looking to improve their body comp and so let's say the you know, arbitrary amount of body fat, let's say 20% body fat, they definitely need to lose some body fat. They're coming to you and saying, Luke, uh, where do I start? And, and you know, what systems are you looking at body-wise to, to make sure that their body is, is optimally functioning before you start hammering them with work and, and yeah. calorie depletion? So we, we do have a pretty long questionnaire. We ask them everything. How are you digesting? Do you bloat? Do you have gas? Do you belch? Do you have any burning in your stomach? Um, what's your relationship to food? What, are, what have you been doing? Like all your training and, and nutrition up to this point. Um, we talk about, we do a lot of biometrics. Like we do waking heart rate, waking HRV, and then blood pressure. Um, we do, we can do fasting lactate if they're, if we have the ability to do that, like I have a machine that will take fasting lactate and that can tell me a lot about how their chemistry is moving. Is that just with a blood pressure? Yeah, it's just like a glucometer. Yeah. And then we'll use a glucometer and a catometer sometimes if we, if we want to see you know, what their blood sugar is and we'll have them tracking that type of stuff. And um, in most of the people that come to us are other coaches. Um, and there were coaches that had come through dogmatic systems that, you know, they've been locked in the same thing and it worked for a long time and now it's not working anymore. They look fantastic, but they feel horrible. Um, and a lot of them, their, their waking heart rate is 85 to 90, which is not good. They go, I don't know why I'm not sleeping. Well, you're so sympathetically jacked up right now. You're mm -hmm. not sleeping because your body thinks you're wrestling an animal while you're trying to sleep. Right. I can show, I can quantify that. So we, we use subjective measures and we use we need objective measures right so we'll say okay subjectively your relationship to food subjectively what have you been doing subjectively how do you feel because that's important objectively what can i actually measure that takes the subjective stuff out of it right. so i can measure and track easily heart rate hrv and blood pressure and man a lot of the coaches that come into us have stage two hypertension or more like i'll do we 
I remember one class in London that I was teaching, there were 60 coaches there and three people in class had gold standard blood pressure, which is under 120 over 80. And I was one of them. And to the other two, I coached almost every single other person had stage two or, or much higher. We had a mostly guy, British, people. mostly British people. Yeah. yeah. But this is, I mean, this is across the board in every single class It's the wow. same story. And none of them are taking their blood pressure. Anyways, I take a blood pressure cuff and I have them take their blood pressure because I want them to see holy crap, like I'm supposed to be teaching people about health and fitness and I've got stage two hypertension and uh, I'm a walking... Well, there's a lot ball. of irony in that, right? Is oftentimes the people who become the teachers, either they weren't able to or they're, they're chasing something themselves and they're learning a skill set while they go and then they want to yeah. pass along to others. Yeah. And, and we know that, like most, you know, coaches in the industry are not qualified to be coaches and it's unfortunate there isn't a higher criteria or higher standard because... We need it, and that's yeah. why I'm grateful for people like you going out and actually providing great, validated information to these people. So at least, you know, whether or not I think they should be coaches or not is irrelevant. But the fact that they're actually getting good information from you to actually take it and apply it to their themselves and their clients is is the way everyone should be going. As right? long as they're willing to apply it, and that's the thing. And what we've done, we try to systemize this to make it really easy for them. Yeah, and hard. we tell them, look, don't change what you're doing. Just see where you can lay in our information over what you're doing. You're already getting good results, but maybe we can teach you how to get better results in a more healthy manner. And it's been incredible over the last four years, the, the amount of uh, testimonials we get from people saying, oh, my God, you've changed everything. Like, I'm no longer destroying my clients. I actually... I take the metrics and I see where they need to be. And what they find is most of their clients don't need to be working on a specific goal right now. Like we, we talk about wants versus needs, right? I know you want to put 25 kilos on your squat. I know you want to put 10 kilos of body mass on, but there's other things you need to do first. Let's get you healthy, prep you to prep, and then we'll give you everything you want. God. That's so simple, right? And to me, that makes so much sense. But if you tell a bodybuilder that, they're like, what do you mean? Like, I'm just trying to eat more and live heavier weights. Yeah. Like, no, man. Like, and then you, you end up like our, our friend from last night who <laughs> had, was sitting at the table with 155 beats per minute, yeah. just sitting there eating, yeah. um, you know, eating 8,000 calories a day and massive 140.5 kilos. I want to give him that 0.5 because he'll get angry if I don't. <laughs> um, and he's a lot bigger than me. So, but, you know, they don't think about this stuff and because nobody else is teaching it, right? Uh, this is the reason I started Muscleners, I wanted to teach to, to look at things a different way. Everything is a coin and everyone's looking at one side. They need to flip it and look at the other because there's more than, more than a thousand ways to get results. But there's a 999 ways to get them in a, the bad way and there's one way to do it the right way. And it doesn't take a lot of skill. And we try to give them easy things that their clients can do with very minimal equipment at home. It's easy to track. It's easy to understand. They don't need to know high-level biochemistry. They just need to know just, just enough, right? But you, you, like you were, when you were telling the guys in class, these people who say you can only put on a certain amount of muscle and you can only lose – yeah, when you look into the research, that's true, but they're – research is important, but it can be very limited and right. it can be who's open to it? your interpretation of the right. research. Yeah, but research is always subjective to who's doing it. How are they training? What's their HRV, yeah. right? Like where's, what are they doing parasympathetically? How sympathetic are they? We don't know those things. And, and it's that, also very one dimensional, right? right? When you research, you're only researching a certain number of factors. You're not putting all of this stuff in. Like if somebody was to research our system, that would be massively expensive. Like the research is now right. 600 muscle nerds coaches going out there and applying it and then telling me, giving me feedback on how it's changing their clients. And I didn't think people could lose weight this fast. I didn't think people would get this strong this fast. When you're healthy, it's a lot easier. Easier. 
that's what I try to tell people. It's like fat loss isn't hard. Like just get your body healthy and your body knows what to do with it, yeah. right? So people, when people talk about this calories in, calories out, you just got to be in a deficit. That's complete stupidity to me because I've been in a massive deficit and not lost a pound. I've been in an excess and lost a bunch of fat. And, and that I know that. Like it's yeah. not questioned. Like I, it's not subjective. Like I have data. Like I've written, I write everything down, right? So that to me is like, well, that theory goes out the window. So then I start digging deeper into the rabbit hole and going, what are these factors influencing you know, when I'm in a caloric excess, why am I losing fat? When I'm in a caloric deficit, why am I not losing fat? It always seems to come back to some really, really basic stuff, right? It's like stress, oh, digestion, sleep, right? sleep. <laughs> yeah, if you can do those things, all of a sudden your body works for you rather than against you. Your body knows what to do. You're just fighting against you. And until you can get that point across to people, it's just such a hard battle to fight. Like, because their their belief is, this is what the guys used to do. Therefore, that's what I should do, the girls. Therefore, that's what I should do. And you just can't think like that, right? Like, and just because this exercise worked for Dorian Yates' back to grow doesn't mean it's going to work for mine. Just because that diet worked for Ronnie Coleman doesn't mean that's the same as what you should do. Your bodies are different. He may have some genetic superior um, abilities or, or predispositions that you don't have or you don't know about. And he could actually, it's this topic we talked about, resilience. He was resilient to this stress. And you may not be. So our friend here being such a young guy, like, He's not as resilient as some of these other guys, right? Like, you know, he, he could be doing the exact same thing as a bodybuilder who's been doing it four times as long and ultimately really hurt himself really, really just based on health and, and resilience and genetic predispositions. Yeah. Like the devil's in the details and it's people, it's, it's details and it's the fundamentals, like the foundational fundamentals. But foundational fundamentals aren't sexy for people. They're not sexy enough. So when you go in and you learn like how to set somebody up on the bench correctly, like you guys were showing, like maybe an incline bench is not good for you, right? Maybe a decline bench is better. Maybe you put your arms here and your hands here and you learn how to lift like this. That stuff to most people aren't sexy. They want to learn drop sets and they want to learn, you know, they want to learn all these crazy protocols. Right. They don't even know how to lift. Right. Like they don't know how to move correctly. Coaches are horrible at even executing exercise themselves. When you learn how to ex ex execute the exercise correctly, you don't need a whole lot of fancy stuff until you get really freaking good. Right. And when you like when you guys were teaching the 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 dumbbell presses, and I'm looking at it going, huh? Like I come up from a powerlifting background. I've always had a horrible chest, gigantic arms, and big shoulders. And I'm looking at it going, huh? Maybe this is why I never got a big chest until I was benching over 425 pounds right. because I had to bench enough to make my chest work. Right. Now, if I want to build muscle, I'm going to have to reevaluate how I'm actually pressing and what angle I'm pressing at and stop thinking about the weight and thinking about making the muscles work correctly, right? That's been my plight. When I was in a physique, I had, I had an enormous back. I had an enormous back. I was the only guy on the stage with calves. Um, I had huge shoulders and arms, and I had this tiny little chest. So you go turn for a, like a side pose, and it's like, oh, wow, where'd this chest go? It's not there. Because I, I wasn't at the time training the right way, right? So guys need to understand, like, you have to learn the foundation, fundamental stuff, and do it really, really, really well. And you have to earn drop sets and rest pause sets and bands and chains. You got to earn that stuff. Right. Well, there's no need for it, right? Like people yeah. are like, oh, how do I build more muscle? Well, it's not about working harder yet, right? Working, we talked about that. Working hard is a part of the process, but it's not yet. Yeah. Like it's like the, the like the analogy of writing with your other hand. Like, okay, take, put the pencil in your other hand. Now write hard, write fast. Is it going to look, is it going to be the result you're looking for? No, yeah. it's going to look like shit. It's like you're writing with someone else's hand. You yeah. can't control it. 
Yeah, exactly. So one thing you mentioned there that I want to not breeze over is fundamentals. You said fundamentals, like people are afraid of the fundamentals, the little things. What are fundamentals? Well, from a nutrition perspective, like the fundamental thing, the calories versus calories out is that fundamental. It's, it's undeniable, but it's not as simple as you think. Right. Like when people, it's not a, it's not an A minus B equals C type of deal. When you look at calories versus calories out, I like to call it inception. Like if you've seen that movie, it's a dream and a dream and a dream. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of factors that go into calories and a lot of factors go to calories out. Like you've talked a lot about, are you actually assimilating your food? Number one, if your relationship to food is bad and I tell you to eat something that you think psychosomatically is a problem, it's probably going to be a problem, right? If you think you have food intolerances, even if you repair those food intolerances, you could have a psychosomatic response to that, Mm -hmm. which is going to increase stress, which is going to destroy your ability to assimilate it correctly, all the way down to the mitochondrial level. Um, A lot of people don't chew their food. They're they're so in a rush, they don't sit and enjoy their food. They're playing on their their (laughs) iPad or their phone. I'm just going to interrupt with a story, but our friend said to me yesterday, he goes, do you actually chew your food? And I said, yes. He goes, I don't. I just put it in my mouth and wash it down with water. (laughs) What the... What's the matter uh, with you, man? This is the the the, <laughs> the whole concept, the the entire the concept, the the overriding theme of digestion assimilation is surface area. Yeah. So if you cut your intestines down, your small intestines, you you pull them out as far as they'll go, they'll be the size of a, a doubles regulation tennis court. Mm-hmm. That's a that's something to think about. And then. You know, and even in the stomach, everywhere you have in that digestive tract is all about breaking the food down in the smallest pieces possible, right? And as the smallest pieces are easier to digest, they're easier to assimilate. When you start assimilating things that are too big, it's foreign to the body. And that's where people get food intolerances. That jacks your immune system up, gives you a sympathetic issue, which then makes your stomach, your intestines more permeable. And then also you start getting maldigestion. So you're going to get things that are not getting assimilated. They're going to go further down the track. They're going to get enacted by bacteria. Now you get somebody with SIBO or some other issue like that. Right? This stuff is all pretty easy to fix. A, calm yourself before you eat. Eat food that you enjoy. Like Don't eat bland shit food. Chew your chicken food. nuggets, Luke. I love my chicken nuggets. That's <laughs> totally Makito. But you know, I, I you know why I ate McDonald's the first day, and I usually I'll do this sometimes in my seminars because it freaks everybody out, and they need to understand like stop freaking out over food. Right. I've eaten McDonald's once in the last nine months. Right. It's I'm not gonna get up and have a heart attack eating 19 chicken nuggets. I like nuggets. the term Makito. You should, right. you should yeah. trademark that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, people need to, they need to relax with food. They need to enjoy their food. They need to get in a calm state and God, eat like an adult, chew your food, right? Because you know how trainers are. They'll put 15 clients back to back and then they'll, they'll try to, they'll try to inhale their food. They'll unlock their jaw and they'll swallow it like a, like a snake while their clients doing their five minute warm up on the treadmill. That is not the way to improve your gut health. So what's the solution there? Cause we all live a rushed life, myself included. And during my career, like I said, I live like a bodybuilder, so oftentimes it was on my own schedule. I'd be like, sorry, guys, I need to eat. You're going to be 10 minutes late today. We'll just push everything back. But I get the reality of not wanting to be late. I get the reality of like, hey, I need to get some calories in. So is it, in, in your opinion, then, is it better to go without meals, which is what I do now, or is it better to shove something in or just um, be a better scheduler? Ultimately, ultimately, if you're that busy, I don't have any problem with skipping meals. Um, if you're trying to put on muscle, you probably want some type of anabolic response, which yeah. is like three or four grams of leucine will help right. hold you to that next meal. Um, I like, I got this from my buddy Luke Watson at Code Fitness in England. He, and this blew my mind because it's, sometimes you hear people say things and you're like, 
wow, that's such common sense. I can't believe I didn't think about that. <laughs> totally. And what he does, if he has people with gut issues or they're too busy to eat, everything that eats pre-digested, meaning they eat a lot of beef mints, they eat a lot of chicken mints. Dude, I was talking about that in my car last night. That's yeah. why when I was yeah. when I was getting up to 8,000 calories a day, 7,000 calories, you have to. Yeah. Like things that are empty the stomach quickly. But you hear, you get nutrition gurus or yeah. wannabe nutrition gurus, they go, oh, you can't eat anything that's been in the mints. You don't want to eat that type of ground beef and all that. Why not? mastication. Yeah, it's, but it's already broken down. Like right. even if you chew, chew, swallow, at least it's smaller than, it's a smaller than if you yeah. just swallowed huge chunks of meat so and then people want me to do a bodybuilding uh nutrition podcast They're like hey man teach us how to eat like to get really really big and i was like well okay but like there's not that i mean there's tons of things i could talk about you're probably the better guy to have a podcast with about that but that was the first thing i was going to say is you have to eat foods that digest assimilate quickly so that because if you're going to eat again in two and a half hours you can't be i mean you're going to be shoving food on top of food but ideally it's you know the first one empties the stomach second one comes yeah and that comes with like how fast can I, or what can I do to accelerate absorption? So it's things like having less water in your oatmeal, things like, you know, um, things like get more f food into my belly and, and ultimately minced meat and I'm, eggs. And we're big in the shakes too. Shakes, like, yeah. And that's for a lot of people a no-no. But when we tell people to do shakes, I want you to make your shake like a meal. Like you're not just drinking two scoops of whey protein. You're adding some spinach, adds, you know, add yeah. some plant matter, add a little bit of psyllium husk if you want to, stuff like that, that, that and add some fat. So yeah. you, you have a complete meal. It's just you don't have to like chew and break it down. And that helps out a lot of people with digestive issues. Mm -hmm. uh, digestive enzymes, like taking something, we use Thorn Biogest, which has, you know, HCL, Pepsin. that product. It, yeah, it has a little bit of oxbile. We see a lot of bile issues with people that they just can't. Um, they can't break down fat, so we'll give them a little bit of ox bile or we'll give them How some do you tuck, uh, that? Um, Have you ever had the endless wipes where you poop and it tell you got to basically no. you roll the toilet paper around your hand like a torch and you just keep wiping your ass until <laughs> they, you get things like that? No. Or you get people that they'll start taking fish oil and they're like, man, my poop smells like salmon. Okay, well, I'm assuming now that bile is not oh. doing its job emulsifying and maybe there might be some pancreatic lipase issues. So... You know, when we have people with bad digestive issues, it might be good as a prophylactic. Just go ahead for the first like six to eight weeks. Go ahead and take a digestive enzyme with that has pancreatin, so it has all the pancreatic enzymes, uh, the bile acids, and all that. And then we'll give them a little extra bile because it's it, the stuff's cheap and there's no negative consequence to it. Um, and then they usually get a lot better. And then we can taper off of it, and they don't have to take it anymore. One thing that I run into a lot, like when, when people come into my world, I always start with two things. And that's just saying to the bodybuilder friend, I was like, listen, man, you don't need to work with me. Just go fix your digestion. Go fix your breathing. Those are two things that I'll typically start with, right? And uh, I'd like to know if there's anything that, that are kind of the gateway for you and how you would then address those, the, you know, maybe it's not breathing, maybe it's just specific, some type of autonomic response. But if talking about the gut health and the autonomic nervous system. Yeah, I mean, the first thing we do, so let's say a uh, hypothetical guy that comes to us, bodybuilder, blood pressure of 190 over 110, okay? Um, is that real? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've had 210 <laughs> over 120 in, in London before. Oh, man, right? but this I, guy I was, would just be like, man, I can't help you. Go see your doctor. Yeah, this guy was massive. Like, he's massive. He just won a, oh, a huge, one of the biggest shows in Europe. And got it, got it. But dude, even at my biggest, I was I was always 120 over 80, 130 over one over like 85 was like yeah. 128 over 85 was like my highest. And and a lot of that a lot of that's assumed that that's going to happen because you're ginormous and yeah. people need to understand too is BMI still matters, right? So if you look at BMI for blood pressure or just in for, general for, for just health. in general, yeah. The bigger you get, the more massive you get. There's still a trade-off there. Like sure. And this is it's not something that's normally talked about, but 
I've said it for years, and then I talked to Dr. Bob Rakowski about it. I've talked to James Laval about it. I've talked to a bunch of people, and they're all of the same. They're all of the same thought process that, okay, you can be you can be out of shape and obese and BMI, and that's bad. But you can also be two hundred ninety pound bodybuilder, and that could be bad as well. That's one of the contributing factors to my retirement. Man, is like, the only way for me to get higher in the sport than I was was to get bigger. And, and a lot better and push the, the density and push like the ultimate stress. And I was like, I just, I don't want to do it, man. Like, I don't like being 300 pounds. The you thing know, is when, you, when you talk to bodybuilders about this, they don't want to hear it. They're like, Oh yeah. no, no, I'm big and I'm in shape and I'm jacked, but okay. But you're unnaturally big and jacked. The sure. minute you start lifting weights for hypertrophy and eating for hypertrophy, you've now done something that is not normal to the human body. Right. We're not built for it. That's not saying it's bad. That's just saying you understand that there is a trade off there. Like, um, I mean, the majority of my life, that I'm the smallest I've been right now since I was like 19, and I'm sitting at like 216 pounds. And mm-hmm. the majority of my life, I stayed anywhere from 225 to 270. And I was willing to trade some health for yeah. performance Acutely. and powerlifting and bodybuilding and all that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now that I'm turning 41 in a few weeks, yeah. I'm not, I don't want that anymore. So I'm going the other way. Right. But, you know, everything's a, a trade-off. If you want to excel in a sport, there's nothing healthy about competition. You realize you're going to give up some health factors for that, but don't be in denial about it. And a lot of people are in denial about it. And they come to me and they're like, how do I need to improve my health? Well, okay, you've got two choices. We can use supplementation and get some testing and use some aerobic conditioning and all this stuff, or you can just lose a lot of muscle. Oh, I can't lose a lot of muscle. The BMI, no, it's BMI is bullshit. It's not. It's not. And it's, it's, the research is going to come out. Everybody's going to see. For sure. And you know, even the idea of the CPAP, right? People wear the CPAP like a badge of honor. And I'm yeah. like, listen, man, if you can't sleep because you're so heavy, that should be a warning signal of like, eh, maybe I should change my life. Like if you're not already top 10 in the Mr. Olympia, yeah. like if you're that close, okay, maybe give it another, give it a shot, right? But if you're not, like, come on, man. But hey, look. Like, it's not worth it. I, I'm, you know what, I am, I'm more of the libertarian type of thought process that I don't care. You can do whatever you want in your life as long as it doesn't affect mine or anybody else's if you want to trade off some health and some longevity to be big and massive and strong more power sure absolutely it doesn't make you a bad person right but don't be in denial about it and don't be surprised when stuff starts to fail on you right yeah but i guess you know sometimes i take it on personally i was like i just want to help these people man i want them to realize because i've been there you know i've been on that that never-ending quest to get to the top of the mountain and you know, didn't care how big I was. Let's get, I was 321 or 325 or how I was. And like, I'd been there and I realized like, that's not where you need to be, right? It's not where you necessarily want to be. It's not the optimal place. And that's not going to change the person you are. It's not going to make you happy. And that's an important realization for people to have is, um, you know, big is not necessarily better. I mean, bigger is awesome. Don't get me wrong. Like I want to be, I like being big. I like being muscular because life is, life is great. Like you get instant respect, you get credibility. I just love being strong. Um, but it's not the only thing, man. Like at some point, there's got to be a realization of, one, I could do this and do it much more healthfully. Uh, but two, like it's just not a never-ending ascension yeah. of a mountain. At some point, yeah. You come down. I mean, it's it's in when you've been when you've been big and when you've been really strong. When you're used to being the biggest, strongest guy in most rooms, and you know, yep. um, then when you when you start getting smaller, it's a it's a head screw because like <laughs> I, Jordan posted something on uh, Instagram and it was me talking and I'm looking at it going, Oh my God, I look like a triathlete. I don't even look like I've ever competed before. And, and people were messaging me on Instagram going, Oh, you look good, but you look so skinny. I'm like, Oh God. And I'm still bigger than most people sure, in a room. Sure. 
but you look and you're like, oh man, I look, my head looks so big and I look so skinny. I'm not yeah. used to that. But you know, you get different goals and that type of thing. And I obviously fought that battle leaving bodybuilding because I, as soon as I left, I was like, you know what, I want to get small. And I, I really started to descend. Like I went from 310 to 250 in three months or something. And, and then I started getting the small comments and it was completely unconscious, but I started training hard again. I was like, oh man, I think I got caught in the trap. And I wasn't aware of the fact that I felt insecure about it. But at some point I was like, I think I'm going to go to the gym and train today. Oh, that felt really good. I think I'm going to go to get gym and train again tomorrow. And now I'm going to start eating more protein and like go from 250 back up to 280 almost in like three weeks. Yeah. Um, and just get caught in that trap. But I think it needs to just always be this really conscious thing for anyone looking to lose weight is like, you can't become mindless because you say it, it wasn't i wasn't aware of the reality that i started feeling scared but i definitely like everyone's like what happened man you got so small yeah i'm like i'm still 250 man like i'm not a small guy but relative to being 310 there's a big drop people are crazy in what they say they don't think about what i say might have an impact on this person's psychological health right yeah, and i'm pretty strong but like yeah. I, I, unconsciously i think it affected me yeah 100 percent. and it's like you know saying oh man you're looking really skinny that's Probably not a good thing to say <laughs> to somebody who was a 270-pound right. uh, powerlifter. But, but maybe point. that's what I was looking for, right? Yeah. Like if I was trying to get smaller, maybe that's a compliment. Yeah. So yeah. it's like you tell tell them they look great and they look lean. Yeah, that's a much better, <laughs> much better way of framing this. But yeah. And I've still got 10 kilos I have to lose, right? So. Right. But you have a, you have an objective, right? I have an objective, and then my objective outweighs people's subjective yeah. thought process of what I look like, right? Yeah. And, you know, at the, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm being a baby. I don't want to go to a jiu-jitsu competition and, and roll with somebody like Mike Rutella, Chad Wesley Smith. So I'm getting down to 92 so I can, you know, be the biggest, strongest guy in my weight class like they are in theirs, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I have a selfish reason for it. But it's also a health thing. I feel fantastic. I'm sitting at like 102 kilos, and I'm getting lean, and I feel awesome. And when I'm depleted, I'm like 97, and I feel fantastic, like – it's not a burden to do things anymore, and a lot of my pain's going away, so that's awesome. Right, and that's what the best thing I experienced getting down to 250. Like, I cut my meat down. I was eating maybe 75 to 100 grams of protein a day. Like, I have a lot of extra stored protein, so I was like, yeah, I can do this for a while. I wasn't ready to go vegan or anything crazy like that, but cut it down for a while, I felt amazing. Man. Yeah. Like, just constantly, my body just felt amazing, and then I started training with Derek Lunsford for Olympia, and it's like, oh, now i got to keep up, so, like, now I'm adding yeah. in 300 grams of protein, and it just grows pretty so quickly. I like to gamify things, so, like, when I'm trying to get big and strong, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm, it's almost like when I used to play World of Warcraft, leveling up to like some super beast, right? So, oh, okay, now I'm deadlifting 300, now I'm deadlifting 320, now I'm deadlifting 350. Mm -hmm. Cool, but you also, you also take some things away, like, because everything's a trade-off. Oh, man, I can't walk up a flight of stairs without needing a post-workout shake and a nap. I can't, you know, my blood pressure's yeah. going up. And now that I'm going the other way, I'm like, okay, so, yeah. I can barely squat 150 kilos right now. I can I can barely deadlift 170. Like, right. but I can run really fast right now. I can jump and I can move on the mat and I can. I'm almost back into doing the splits and mm -hmm. you know it's you're unlocking a whole different skill set. Right. right. I want to talk about mitochondria because I know a lot of people have really dysfunctional mitochondria. Is there some protocol that you like to apply uh, or some some uh, you know vantage point that you like to look at it from? So the first thing, if, if we look at someone with, if somebody comes to me and they have high resting heart rate and they have high blood pressure and maybe they've got low HRV, um, I'm going to assume there's probably some type of mitochondrial issue going on. The, the, the big hammer I have for that is aerobic training. And a lot of people don't want to hear that because they've, <laughs> totally true. they've been told that aerobic training makes you fat. Look at marathon runners. They're fat. Yeah, I hate or the, skinny. Yeah. Or skinny. And the, yeah, you, you know, 
marathon runners don't lift. So of course they're going to get skinny. Your body adapts to the demands you give it, specific yeah. adaptation opposed demand. So if I go out and I start running marathons and I stop lifting, of course I'm going to sh shrink. But if you look at a, if you look at elite level marathon runners, they're average 5% body fat. They're now they're, they don't they're obviously not going to look like they lift, but then again, if you go on the other side and you just train with weights and you don't do any conditioning, then stuff's going to go the other way. Like you might get lean, but you might give off some health issues and your metrics are going to go the wrong way. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we put them on minimum effective volume of weight training. We do a lot of in-range movements like you guys talk about in your, in your seminar. It's like people live in the, the mid-range and the contracted zone. They never really work on getting strong in the in-range motion. So the first six to eight weeks of our least mode stuff, we do a lot of weighted mobility. It's a lot of split squats and then pullovers. It's a lot of incline, um, incline flies or just flat, whatever, uh, chest flies, you know, lat pullovers, um, a lot of hangs and things like that. And we make them stay in that in the extended range for a few seconds. Mm -hmm. And I tell them, I don't care about your strength at this point. I want you moving better. And so we have something we call structural backloading, which we do all of their accessory work up front. And it's a lot of static and PNF stretching. And it's a lot of weight and mobility. Then we put the big movement at the end when, yeah, you're going to be weaker, but you're also in a better mechanical position. Capable of accessing the range. Right. Yep. After six to eight weeks, because you're now in a better biomechanical position, when we start really hitting, like, I love front squats. I love front squats over back squats any day. Me too. And we'll do, you know, we'll do split squats and quad stretching, and we'll do seated good mornings, and we'll do hamstring stretches, and I'll put a front squat at the end of the workout, maybe like three to five sets of three with a six to eight rep max. I just want you to get in the bottom and see how it feels and find that center of balance. Then when we start really hammering the front squat, they're amazed at how strong they get, how quickly, because they're now in a better position sure. of mechanics, right? Yeah. Um, we'll do that. We'll put them down to the minimum effective dose. Maybe that's two hours of weightlifting a week. So it might be two one-hour sessions. It might be four 30-minute sessions. But we hammer cardiac output. And we're looking for global cardiovascular respiratory changes. So the changes in the heart, changes in the lungs, the breathing. We teach them box breathing and breathing patterns. We get their vascular system working well. Now they're recovering and their work capacity goes up. So when they go back to bodybuilding, they can train harder and they can do more density and more volume in less time. Right. So they're not training for three hours. They're training for one, but they're doing three hours of work in one hour. Now we've unlocked a lot of metabolic flexibility and mitochondrial uh, uh, fluidity. So now they can switch back and forth from carbs and fats and they can manage that and they don't have any problem and they're eating two or three times more calories than they did before. So now they're not nutrient deprived. Right, man. That's, that's funny. I think I said that. It's like when people come into my world and they say, hey, Ben, I want you to coach me. I said, no problem. First month of coaching includes cardio and, and breathing. And like, if you can complete that, then we can start. Yeah. It's really that simple. Well, there's, there's many more levels to it than that, but that's the, you know, the simple marching orders is like, I need you to get aerobic, aerobically efficient. I need you to learn how to breathe. And then we just I remove the toxic burden, right? So what are all the toxins in your life? It could be psychological toxins. It could be environmental toxins, food toxins. Get rid of those things. And if we do that, by the end of the first month, people have already lost 10 to 20 pounds yeah. of fat. And they're like, hey, man, didn't really do anything. But I'm, yeah, I'm like, yeah, no shit. Because you didn't have to change. You have to reinvent the wheel. You have to change your whole life. You just need to remove some things that are really the big bottlenecks. And that's not 100% of the time that that happens. But that seems to be the case with most people that I encounter, whether it be Gen Pop or people there who are aspiring to have better physiques is, you know, just finding those things that they're not very good at and, and making them strengths. And that's so simple, right? And that's yeah. the way we approach training is like, what is your bottleneck? What are the two to three things or even one thing right now that's holding you back from taking the next step forward? And uh, I'm not sure how often you see it with um, your clients, but it's like, for me, it's always those two to three things. If we incorporate the gut, like it's 
But almost 100 percent of the time, it's those three things. It's right back to the fundamental stuff that you need for health, and health builds performance. And that's why our catchphrase is health over performance. If you get healthy, your performance will automatically get much better. Right. And what's funny is you you know I I do these podcasts and I talk to coaches all the time, and they they talk a good game, like you're saying this is how I do it. But I saw you say that to somebody and most of the time people talk a good game but they don't actually talk about what they actually do right and i i heard you say that to somebody at the seminar when they asked you to train them you're like you need to go get this other stuff straight and if you do this then i'll, I'll think about it right and, and and this sounds arrogant but like the reason i do that is because it's not worth their time or mine like i can't like we said with the guy with that workout this morning we did two sets if he would have paid me for that workout, that's a waste of his time and mine, right? He couldn't get past the second set. And not because it wasn't because I worked him hard, it's because he had terrible, terrible aerobic capacity and he was hypercapnic, right? High amounts of carbon dioxide in his blood. Well, I can't train you if you have those two things. Yeah. So don't even waste your time. And if they're not willing to do that little simple stuff, they're not going to listen to you when it gets hard. Diet. Yeah. So it's funny because, like, you know, people always say, like, hey, man, how do I get in your coaching program? It's really that simple. It's like, here's the, here's the free, here's the first about the coaching program. Like, it's, remove these simple yeah. things and obviously you know there's there's other inter, uh, interventions for people with very specific ailments like you said digestive stuff or sleep stuff or whatever but um, it's really that simple for everybody listening um, like make sure you're addressing those things and that doesn't have to be hours and hours a day right like 20 to 30 minutes of, of challenging cardio a day 10 to 15 minutes of breathing like if i do 10 minutes of breathing every day my brain feels different my body feels different my spine moves differently my hips move differently all of a sudden i have better mobility from breathing and people go well why well think about the mechanics of it how, how it's the most reflexive movement pattern in the body if you if you if you establish that if you establish walking that's the other reason those two things are part of that right is the two most reflexive movement patterns in the body your body needs to know how to do those effectively if you want to be able to do the other stuff so yeah. it's a huge part of it. Yeah, I was reading some um, Stuart McGill stuff the other day about the importance of walking mm -hmm. and the importance of that cross chain between one side versus the other and walking and swinging your arms and like over exaggerating yeah. the gait pattern yep. because people don't walk normally anymore. Right. And that's just, and people can't crawl, right? Um, I do I do animal flow as well with people, right? Oh, cool. And we'll use that as part of their conditioning when they're ready for it. And yep. I've had... 20 year olds they couldn't do any of the animal flow that's the simplest animal flow stuff because they had no mobility no flexibility but they would go in and they would pull a 220 kilo deadlift but they couldn't do the simplest things crawling around on the ground even 30 minutes they'd be completely wiped out and wanting to throw up and they go look you know why, why did i hurt myself why did i tear my hamstring right why do i why do i have a hernia well guess why yeah right when in the scope of bodybuilding i mean look at our friend we're talking about he can't even do a double a double biceps pose without going in a massive thoracic <laughs> extension because right. he doesn't have external rotation. Yeah. They, they tend to forget, like, it's great that you look good, but you still have to show that off. That's half of the battle is getting on stage, not shaking like you've got Parkinson's, you know, not, not going into thoracic extension when you can't vacuum and now your gut's sticking out. Like, you have to be able to get in these things or you can't show off your physique and now you've done, you've done all this work for nothing. And so much more than that, right? Like, if they improve their ability to, to pose, which is the end result, they'll improve their ability to train. So I'm training another guy here in the gym in, in Doherty's, and I'm like, hey, man, let's go pose. And like he couldn't hit a pose anywhere near correctly. And I was like, well, guess what happens if we improve your ability to do that pose? Your back increases in size. Your biceps increase in size. Your abs look better. Like probably your legs and glutes get better too, right? Just by a, a little bit of manipulation of thoracic extension, external rotation, like super simple stuff that – 
uh, it's just not being taught commonly in the industry. I, I don't, I want to say like the industry is misguided. It's just, nobody's out there preaching this stuff, which is why like you and I have an awesome connection, man. I love the conversation you're having. And I think it's, uh, it's been a great, um, synergy. And I think we'll continue to do some stuff together. 100%. And you know, with, with opposing people these days, don't take it. They don't take it seriously enough. Like, and I said, I said to Tony, like Tony Doherty, I was like, hey, man, make posing a bigger, if you want to make the Arnold, this Arnold the biggest show in the world, make posing a bigger deal. Because you want guys to come in, put time and effort into it, make it a show, bring the art back to it, find some way to make it an art spectacle. Yeah, I mean, the, the best way, I, I'm not big into a lot of activation work, because when you teach people the activation work, they end up doing 40 minutes of activation before every workout. <laughs> totally. Then their workouts are like three hours. Yeah. If you would just learn how to contract a muscle until it cramps, like every single muscle, you right. won't have a problem feeling that muscle and right. then work on cramping it while you're in movement. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, my thing is six to 10 seconds before a set. Like you don't have to do an hour. You don't have to do a bunch of movement stuff. Like if you can't feel your pecs, it will be advantageous to you to do a six to 10 second isometric right before you go in. You're resting 45 to 60 seconds minimum between sets anyways. Instead of standing there and checking Instagram, do some yeah. activations of, of, the, of the working muscle and of the prime stabilizer muscles, right? That, I think, is advantageous, yeah. but I agree totally, yeah. man. I mean, I've got like, my, my buddy Dean McKillop, uh, Flex Success. He's, he's got one of the best posing. Like, his, his, his physique is, and I don't want to get all weird, like I'm like <laughs> creeping on him, but he takes his posing very seriously, and his body, the symmetry he has, and yeah. his ability to contract, and his ability to show it off is probably one of the best I've seen in all of Australia and probably in all of the world. And wow. he doesn't even take the bodybuilding seriously. Right. Like he just does it for fun. I'll tell you when I early in my career, I was, you know, coming from Canada, had this belief that in order to become a professional, you needed to be like an artistically librata style poser. So I would spend at least an hour every single day from the time I was 17 to 22 or three posing. And my physique really showed it. Like it was very different. My control was there. My ability to contract muscles was there. My range and end range control was there. And then as soon as they announced, pretty much, you know, maybe just after I turned pro, they announced I didn't have to judge posing anymore. And I just literally stopped. The only time I'd pose is like a week before the show. Because my belief in my unconscious mind was, well, I'm already a great poser. Like I was a great poser. I got posing awards going all through my amateur ranks. And then once I took it away, I stopped doing it. So the only time you do it is like, shit, it's like three days before the show. I'm carving up now. I better start posing. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, wait, this is challenging. This is hard. I didn't do this. And then eventually over time, you're losing those ranges. You're losing the ability to access and your posing starts getting weird. Your body starts getting weird. And you're like, oh, I didn't draw the connection between those two things. Yeah. But for anybody out there listening, male or female, man, pose. Take a posing class. Your training will get better. It's just demonstrating enrage control. Yeah. Like and start it. posing before you look good. Like start yeah. at the start. You're okay. Yeah. Pose in your off season. Don't wait until, oh, now I look good. I'll start trying to show it off. If you're fat in your off season, pose. Yeah. Like there's no reason you, not to. It'll give you less reason to be fat. Like yeah. if, you, if you're forced to take your shirt off and wear your posing trunk, you're like, man, I better start doing some cardio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, and, and you look at posing and the key things that people lack is, is always the same thing they lack, obviously, in training that would make their physique better. It's thoracic extension, it's external rotation, it's pelvic stability, it's internal external rotation of the hips. Like those are the things that uh, if, if by applying them to posing, all of a sudden my training starts to get better. I feel more stable. I get stronger. I get less injuries. My elbows don't hurt as much. My shoulders don't hurt. You're like, I wonder why that, why that happened. Yeah. You know, a great friend of mine, Jacques Taylor, if you don't know, I'm going to connect you with him. He's been on the podcast. Um, was the first guy to suggest that to me. It was like 2011. I was living in, in Venice Beach. And he goes, hey, man, what are you doing? You're posing. You know, he's a very calm guy. I go, oh, you know, just like a couple weeks before the show. 
He goes, interesting. I'm like, and he goes, yeah, I'll do it after. I said, I'll do it after my workout. He goes, interesting. Why don't you try it before your workout? I said, why would I do that? I don't want to be tired. He goes, well, don't do it to be tired. Just do it enough so that you can feel everything, connect everything, you challenge those things in the end range. So I started to do it, and I did it for me four or five weeks before the contest. And the difference was tremendous. Like, one, it, you know, when you go in, when you're dieting, you're a little bit lethargic when you start the workout. It's hard to start, so that's a good start. Uh, then your connection is just so much better. It decreases the time of the warm-up dramatically. And I only do 10 minutes, like, or less sometimes. It'd be like doing the, you know, the typical warm-up. It was incredible, man. Huge yeah. difference. I think um, just kind of on the nutrition spectrum of posing, uh, because I know you and I are both in a supplementation all that, taking a little bit of acetylcholine boosting stuff before you pose workout, to man. get that mind muscle connection whether yeah. that's you know some people like alpha gpc i don't i don't tend to like that because it's too expensive but yeah. just just some choline bitartrate something yeah. like that works amazingly a little acetylcarnitine choline bitartrate take that you know an hour before you go to pose and then knock yourself out mm -hmm. that's a great segue into one of the questions i want to ask you is like foundational supplements for uh health so the way I've, I've begun to frame um you know kind of health and, and ultimately performance optimization is a great friend of mine who owns a company called Apiron has this really simple model and, and i you know barter from them and give them credit all the time so most people live below baseline right we want to at least get them to baseline and then most people most people if, even if you're trying to improve your physique you, you most people don't realize they're below baseline so we're trying to push them to baseline once we're at baseline now we can start looking at optimization you know once we have optimization which means like so you have baseline supplements and then i have optimization supplements and then i have performance which is even above optimization because once i'm optimal now i can actually open the door to performance and then I can't have growth until I have performance. So it's this ascension of this ladder, right? It's almost like a pyramid. Most people want performance and physique enhancement, but they're not having even optimized, you know, getting themselves to baseline or optimization. Yeah. So that's the way I frame it. And I'd love to hear what supplements you use to kind of like, uh, or maybe that are your, your most important or your most commonly used or the ones that you can't live without. Like those, those ones that you think are most valuable to the greatest subset of people. You know, so I've I've done a, a 180 over the last four years. When I was at Polycon Group, it was all about the supplements, off five, yeah. six hundred pills a day. And now I keep things really simple. I assume that most people are probably going to have a uh, nutrient deficiency or that the levels aren't optimized. So we give Thorn Basic Detox nutrients. It's the first thing we get. Multivitamin. We, yeah, we give them a multivitamin, multivitamin. Is the that the same Thorn Basic Nutrient? Yeah. Nutrients. The reason I like that one is because it it has high quality forms like not all vitamins are the same sure. you want to make sure the right form so there are large dosages of all the right forms it's all the methylated b vitamins in it so they're already broken down mm -hmm. so you don't have to worry about any genetic issues um it also has uh, 480 milligrams of magnesium at the bit largest dose 30 milligrams of zinc so you're covered there and then there's some basic stuff for cofactors for detoxification there's some sulfur-based compounds in there and some other things Very that you cool. need to just just help assist so you don't have to worry about if there's any bottlenecks and detoxification type stuff mm -hmm. and um, we give that i like uh, atp science has one called multi-food um and i've told the guys this before they they say it's a multivitamin you know it's hard for me to call it a multivitamin but what it is because there's not a lot of stuff in it on the label but it's what's in it that's not on the label that really makes it shine which is all the 8,000 chemicals that we don't have a name for we have no idea what they do but what they do is they make the vitamins and minerals work better where does that come from from whole foods they use organic whole foods Got right it. so it's kind of you know, i don't want to put it in the classification or something like a juice plus or whatever but yeah, like a green super green it's like a deal. super green yep. but it's it's a high powered type of super green Got you it. take three of those a day with your basic food yeah and so 
the way the way I see it, and now I'm, I'm a lot of this is just empirical observation. I've got no data, but I've seen it work really, really well. So when you look at something like thorn basic detox, most vitamins are going to be synthetic, and when we say synthetic. That just means they're not from Whole Foods. You, you don't have like Beaker off the Muppets sitting there going, me, 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 <laughs> like a little dash of this right. and then the lab blows up. Right. Um, you're growing them off of like yeast and bacterial cultures. There's nothing inherently wrong with that chemical structure. It's the same thing. The problem is when you grow it that way, it doesn't have all the other chemicals that's in food sure. that makes that you need to make the vitamins work optimally. So we'll go Thorn Basic Detox anywhere from 6 to 12 pills a day. We'll do uh, multi-food, ATP size multi-food, you know, two or three of those a day. And then if they don't eat any seafood, we'll give them three or four grams of fish oil. If they have a digestive thing, you know, any bloating, diarrhea, constipation, gas, food intolerances, then we'll give them probably a digestive enzyme. And I keep it, that's as simple as I get. That's our base stuff. If I'm going to give them anything else, then that's going to be on demand through an interview and saying, okay, well, this is, okay, well, you work 12 hours a day. You're not managing your stress well. Quitting your job's not an option. We're going to give you some adaptogens. So I might give them some ashwagandha, some reishi, um, rhodiola, um, cordyceps. And then that, that's, as, that's as complex as I get unless it's on a – Mushrooms. Yeah, immune system issue. Unless it's on a, a, a – I do in quotes yeah, prescription yeah. thing. Sure. And my case coaches case know case. like if it needs to go above and beyond that – then I get involved and I write a specific protocol based on the symptoms that I see. And if yeah. I've got labs off the labs and, and then I think everybody should take a teaspoon of creatine a day. Oh, dude, totally with even my kids. And, and I you know just talk a little bit deeper with what you said there. Like you mentioned magnesium and zinc already being in the multivitamin. And if people aren't taking those two things, I suggest everybody take those personally. Yeah. Um, like if it's not, you're not getting it in your multivitamin because your multivitamin may not be a good quality that's huge. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up creatine because I think that's massive. And it's not just from building muscle, as you know, but so the listeners know it's uh, not just brain health, muscle. methylation. It's yeah. so many things that, that it does. And, you know, we were talking uh, yesterday, the day before about the body stealing glycine, doing all these other things. Um, you know, when you're taking creatine, then you don't have to steal methionine and glycine and all the other things to create the creatine. You can just take the creatine. It's, it has a long tracker a track record. I mean, we've got 70 years of data on it as being super safe and highly beneficial, not just the muscle building, but also to brain health and, and other things. Yeah, it's a nervous system of development of kids, yeah. man. I've been giving to my kids that's were you know, probably a year old, and uh, I think it helps, man. I really do. Yeah. And uh, similar, similar to you, like I went through that phase where Charles kind of perpetuated the use of, of a lot of stuff that was unnecessary, and I was always very skeptical of it, right? Like, you know, I was always told that you need this and this and this. And if, if you're getting, if you have this estrogen problem, you need this. And if you have this liver problem, you need this. And I was like, how is all this stuff not contributing to a greater burden of my body and like toxic, being toxic to my liver and toxic my liver? Yeah. And I really believe it was. So I stopped and I feel better, man. And I take things, people always ask, like I cycle everything. Everything's on a rotational basis. Do I take ashwagandha? Absolutely. Do I take mushrooms? Absolutely. It's just not all the time. Yeah. You know, if I'm at home and I feel stressed, I'm going to throw in the adaptogens. If I'm feeling like I'm, I'm taking a week off and I want to really kind of go into some type of optimization phase, okay, well, let's add some, let's add some, uh, some vitamin C in there. Let's add some glutathione in there. Something like, like, but I wouldn't do it all the time. Yeah. I wouldn't do anything all the time. Short of, like you say, the superfoods, maybe a multivitamin. I, I usually don't do multivitamins, just do methylated bees, like diverse methylated bees. Um, but it's very, very simple stuff. And I do collagen because of, you know, yes. taking an animal. Take protein. stuff until you feel better. Once you feel better, <laughs> take it out. Take it out until you don't feel good again, then right. put it back in, right? It's very simple, but people will take stuff forever. And I used to do, I used to do the same thing. And, um, you know, I take qualia for my brain. I take qualia and I take thorn neurochondria. And I swear I can hear colors singing, right? <laughs> but... 
there becomes a point where now my brain is working over time. Yeah. It's over ramped and then I can't concentrate. So I back off of a little mm -hmm. bit, you know, and that's how you just kind of, if you wake up and you feel like, man, I've been scatterbrained, maybe I should stop taking this stuff for a while. I think the multivitamin and for me, fish oil, cause I don't eat enough seafood. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty much everyday thing for me. But some of the nootropics and stuff, just take it on demand. You don't always need it. Alpha like, GPC is one that I take every day because I feel like I do put my tr muscle and my brain in high yeah. demand on a regular basis. You know, I had a bad experience with Alpha G GPC Love once. To hear it, yeah. uh, I, uh, I went to Dubai to teach and I was massively jet lagged and I took 2,400 milligrams because that's the dose that yeah. Charles like two, told was me it, to was take. Like two ampules? Yeah. Did, were you taking two, liquid? It was, no, I was taking the pills that the Polycrum mm -hmm. Group had. And I took it, and I was standing in front of class, and I'm like, oh, wow, I feel no jet lag. And, wow, I'm thinking really fast. And I started talking really fast. And then my stomach goes gurgle, 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 and I almost pooped my pants in front of a class. And I was like, I'm sorry. Well, it's a glycerol molecule, right? Like, Excuse me. I'll be right back. And I went to the bathroom, and just everything came out. So then I realized maybe I need to start with the lowest effective dose from now on instead of jumping to the ludicrous dose. Yeah, yeah. And again, I, I probably do 600 milligrams two to three times a day. And not every day, but... Like anything, not everything, but yeah. you know, if I drink coffee, it's going in my coffee. Oftentimes, I know Scott Hagerman, who's the guy who created or owns the patent, anyways, and uh, he sent me a bunch. And he's like, "Hey, man, I want you to try before bed because it's supposed to increase your growth hormone." I was like, "Okay, I don't know if it increased my growth hormone, but my sleep was great." So it, counterintuitive, right? Because most people think alpha GPC nootropic took it before bed and helped my sleep, which was interesting. Any supplements that you used to take that you think people should avoid? Uh, some of the old protocols that I used to get, like taking a lot of DEM, a lot of dynomethane. Um, it, it's, you know, used to say like 600 milligrams. Well, what we now know is that can be anti-androgen. So, you know, 200 milligrams. I think that a lot of people over the age of like 40, 45 should probably take 200 as a prophylactic. Um, I, I don't... Daily? Daily. I don't give a lot of anti-estrogen or uh, anti-aromatase type stuff anymore other than, you know, take, take 30 or 40 milligrams of zinc a day and make sure it's a high quality oh, zinc. Sulforaphane? Good. Sulforaphane. I'd like sulforaphane, but what I'm into nowadays is giving people, instead of giving them single nutrients, I want it in a blend. Like Life, Life Extension has one called Triple Cruciferous Blend, yeah. so it has all of those phytonutrients instead of just giving sulforaphane. Or if I give sulforaphane, I'll give it in like Thorn Metaclear and Metaclear SGS, and I'll give them one or two shakes of that a day. Yeah, but but then again, if we go to the performance side of a girl going into a competition and she's having problems getting her legs lean, I may give her a huge dose of sulforaphane because empirically I've seen it work really well. Yeah, and and I'm big dose. I'm talking like you know 180 milligrams of sulforaphane a day, mm -hmm. but it's for a very limited time when we're trying to lean her legs out. Um, and what I found with the sulforaphane is. You, you take the dose you need to give you really like hardcore gas all the time. And that tends to be the one. Really? You know, and, and I'm, I'm just being funny here, but I, I feel like that's like uh, fat being farted out of the body for most girls. Because <laughs> that's the number one complaint I get like from their partners. Their husbands right. will call me and go, dude, her legs are looking amazing. But oh my God, she keeps hot boxing me and, you know, giving me the Dutch <laughs> oven at night. You right. got to do something about this. Very but cool. People need to understand biochemically, everything's got a consequence. So if you take too much of one nutrient, it's going to mess up something somewhere else. So if it's for competition, short time, I get it, but you don't want to do that forever and ever and ever because then you're going to create other deficiencies or other biochemical mishap that then you're going to have to fix later on anyways. Luke Lehman, where can everybody find you? They can find me at MuscleNerds underscore health on Instagram, MuscleNerds on Facebook, and then uh, my personal, if you just want to see memes and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu stuff, at Luke Lehman, L-E-A-M-A-N on Instagram. And, uh, yeah, and then our website is MuscleNerds.net. It's a pretty crappy website. 
just we're working on it. But hey, man, you're putting out great information, and uh, you know if people are judging you by your website, they're that's yeah. YouTube too, but I don't know the address. Just type in Muscle Nerds. Yeah, yeah. Incredible information, man. You're doing great things over here. Living in Brisbane, Australia. Yes, sir. Uh, originally from Texas, and uh, man, thank you very much for your Thanks, time brother. and your wisdom. Thanks I appreciate you being here. Yeah, great. man. Awesome. And that's a wrap, ladies and gents. I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast with Luke. If you did, do not forget to subscribe. Muscle Intelligence Podcast is now a new channel on iTunes, and I hope that each and every one of you subscribes. Keep this podcast going. Uh, If you love the podcast as much as I did, share it with at least one person you know that's trying to live their greatest life in a body that they love. We are solving problems and demystifying all the difficult realities that exist around building your body. There's a lot that goes into this stuff, guys, which is why I'm so inspired to search the world, find the world's greatest experts, not only for you, but for me, so we can both understand this on the deepest level possible, so we can feel empowered, love our body, and go on to bring love to everyone in our life and in our world. I hope you guys have an amazing day. Live your greatest life and your greatest body. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.